Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, today on the show, we're going to revisit one of, um, I think, one of the most important topics when it comes to food and food systems and the future of foods, and that is community and community-led biodiversity and how it relates to our foods. So conservation really starts with community. And this week, I have the perfect guest to speak on this subject. Her name is Dr. Terry Allendorf. She's um, leading community-led models for fostering conservation of natural resources in different locations across the globe. Terry is the executive director of Community Conservation, Inc., which is located in Wisconsin, but works in projects around the world, including in Peru, Myanmar, Nepal, Madagascar, Thailand, and Cameroon. She's also an honorary fellow in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, Dr. Allendorf has worked on issues of local communities and conservation since 1994. It's so great to have you on the show, Terry. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Cassie. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So why don't we just start with a basic introduction? Like, what do you mean when you talk about community-led conservation? What does that entail? So what we mean by that is communities actually doing conservation, you know, leading the charge for biodiversity conservation in their own areas, their own habitats, their own forests, their own oceans, right? The land that's near them or the, the sea that's near them. Um, so we don't necessarily, we don't directly mean just benefits or just livelihood activities, right? We mean really supporting them to do the monitoring and enforcement of biodiversity conservation, the on the ground, the on the ground activities. Awesome. And so when you talk about biodiversity, what does that entail? Because that's that can be a yeah. big umbrella, right? <laughs> and usually for us, it means something somewhat charismatic that is endangered that we recognized on like the IUCN's red list or something. But it also means what the communities want to conserve, right? So there's things that are more important to them or less important or things they know more about or less. So one thing we've learned is that often communities you know, the places, the kind of places we work, very rural communities in countries like Cameroon or Peru, they don't have access to information about their biodiversity. So they may know it locally and have their own relationship with it, which is very important, but they don't always know the larger context and their area species might be abundant, right? But globally it's endangered. And so we've also found that communities are really excited to learn more about the larger context of their biodiversity. They know how it's important to them, but then they really appreciate knowing why or how it's important to other people too, or how it fits into the larger, the larger global context. So when we talk about the importance of biodiversity to local people, can you give some examples of what that means? Like how is biodiversity important to them? How do they see it in their daily lives? And sometimes it's just the fact that they live with those species and they're starting to see them disappear. That's one of the primary things we'll hear from people, right? So our project in Cameroon, uh, one of them is just based on the community saying we had chimps that used to come right into the village near the village in the forest and the chimps are not coming in as much we're not hearing them as much and we know that the forest is being degraded they have threats from outsiders people coming across the border burning the forest so they want help to create a community forest there to protect these chimps uh, in in uh, Malaysia, we have an interesting case where we were talking to the communities about what they want to conserve in one of the longhouses we work with. And the women were all about the hornbills. They're very interested in planting more trees that support the hornbills because, again, the hornbills have not been coming as close to the longhouse. There's a different you know mix of tree species. So they want to try and manage 
species better for hornbill, and those tree species are also beneficial to them in terms of fruits and things that, that come off the trees. But the men are more interested in the orangutan. For whatever reason, the men want to prioritize the orangutan, partly because they've been involved in some monitoring activities in the area for orangutan. So they're sort of sensitized to the issues around orangutan from participating. So they're like, we want to we want to think about orangutan and why aren't orangutan coming in as close? You know, how is the habitat habitat changed for them. So those are a couple of examples of, of what it means. And, you know, it's like what they're used to living with, what, you know, their own heritage, right? Their natural heritage that we talk about in our countries too, right? Everyone has that feel. I grew up with this. Where is it? How come I'm not hearing the same songbirds anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Why am I not seeing the same flowers, you know, flowering every year? So very similar issues for them also. Great. So this is really about how they're used to interacting with other organisms in their environment. Um, but biodiversity goes so far beyond that, right? Beyond just, you know, enjoying songbirds or seeing different animals out in the wild. Biodiversity also has to do with like wild plants used for food and medicine. How, how aware are local communities of the risk to those types of organisms? Uh, I think, I mean, they're very aware, right? Because they're living with those day to day and going out and collecting them. And I think it's something that we probably, you know, when we focus on biodiversity conservation, we don't focus on it enough. But one issue that happens is, of course, these, these species that we talk about sort of function as a keystone species, which has pros and cons, but you can see it with the women talking about hornbills. If we plant things that are good for hornbills, it'll also be good for us. This is what, you know, the, mm -hmm. the tree species, the variety should be, should be more like. So, I, and I think as you enter a community and begin to work with them and support them, if you do it the right way, if the process is done correctly, they're the ones prioritizing what they want to conserve, right? You're helping give them information about what species might be important at a larger scale, but hopefully the process is then in place for them to make decisions about what are we seeing um, that there's not enough of, or what are we seeing in the change in composition? Are we getting enough mushrooms out of our forests, right? Are we are those becoming degraded? Are there fewer of them? In Cameroon, at another project site, the community hunts wildlife. And their forest that they now have tenure over is much smaller than it was traditionally. So they've said, you know, we rely on these species. This is part of our tradition. This is a part of our food, but we need to do it sustainably. So can you help us just figure out how to monitor and then sort of come up with some sustainable methods of extraction of wildlife species? Um, so that you're trying to give them a process by which they can make the decisions, collect data, gather information, and make, you know, make the management decisions that are important to them and get them the results that they want and the outcomes they want. That's awesome. I really like the focus on local decision making because I feel like all too often, you know, that's not always the way that NGOs work. Sometimes they swoop in or like, okay, we're going to give help you grow this species that's, you know, not even from that country and they have no cultural heritage or food heritage with, and this will feed you. But it's it's hard to get those things to adapt, you know, or to become integrated in the culture when they don't have an original place. So what are some of the benefits that you see by putting community at the center of the decision-making process? And what are some of the challenges? Well, I think over the long term, it's the most sustainable, right? Because they're the ones mm -hmm. living locally. They're the ones having, often they're the ones either impacting it or they're the ones protecting it from outsiders who are coming in, right? Because often it's not communities that are the real threat. It's logging companies or agricultural interests. And so it's the communities are a first line of defense against that if the right policies and support are in place for them. And, and if it's their own behavior that they recognize as a problem, you can also you know help them with behavior change. But it's important to recognize where the threats are actually coming from and the challenges. Um, and so I think that's the importance of having the communities in the center of it because they can be making decisions. I mean, there's, there's challenges, of course, 
Um, but I had a student once ask me, what if we fail? They were starting a project for leopard conservation in the Kathmandu Valley. Actually, it's a new project they're going to be starting soon. And they're like, well, what if we fail at this? And I'm like, you can't fail with communities if you go in honestly and sincerely and you're trying to support their capacity. So you're driving a process of them having the conversations, right? They, this community came to them to say, hey, we have problems with leopards. We want help trying to mitigate this conflict, right? So you're always just facilitating and assisting. So, I mean... You may not get all the results you want, but I feel like, especially with projects, you don't know how long you're going to be able to work with the community in terms of funding or your own ability to stay in, in a place, right? With so much turmoil in the world, there's sites we can't get into now. And I just feel like if you really focus on that, supporting them, the management and governance processes within the communities, you can't, you can't fail. You've given them some tools, resources, ways to talk about these issues that they may not all agree on, right? They've got to work through it, their own process of working through it, but that's what you're trying to facilitate is that process, not, not necessarily particular outcomes, you know, that you've brought in from the outside. Although that could be there too, right? Usually you come in because there's something that you want to try to accomplish with the community. Yeah. Well, and this, this brings up the next question that's, you know, communities are not homogenous. You have differences of opinions within communities. Um, how does that factor into the process? And that, that is partly why the process of helping them govern and have the right institutions in place for them to make decisions and have discussions is so critical. Um, but it's also important to remember, so it's not like people are on opposite ends of the spectrum either, because mm -hmm. they are in this community together. They see that things are changing or they see there's, there's threats to their biodiversity or their natural resources. So usually they can unite around that issue. And it's just a matter of figuring out, yeah, what are the options? What can we do? And how do we balance out the different options and the pros and cons? Um, so it's important to recognize that difference of opinion. It's also important to recognize why they might have differences of opinion, which uh, gets into some of the gender issues. Gender sort of highlights the fact that in communities, again, like I mentioned, they don't always have in, you know, access to information about the global context of what they have. But even within the community, some people have more access to information. They're invited to meetings with either protected area management or project people who come in who are you know like us trying to support them. So you really need to be you know clear about well who's able to come to the meetings? Are they being able to talk about what's important to them or how do we facilitate that process? Because women in most places we work, it's not as easy for them to come to meetings. Sometimes they're just not invited. Sometimes they don't have time, right? There's a, a number of reasons why women have less access to the information, but that has repercussions for conservation and how sustainable it is over the long time. And that's just, I mean, women, the gender is just one example Example, you also have, you know, minority or marginalized peoples in a community or people who have less wealth and just don't have time to come to meetings, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really important to think about, yeah, within the community, who's coming? Who are you talking to? And, yeah. and we often think we don't want to bother women with gender, too. I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to bother people, right? So I know the women are so busy, like I don't want to ask, I don't want to push for them to come to the meeting or it's culturally insensitive for me to say, you know, women need to come. And I've just found that it's it's really important to do that because the women do want to be involved. And without sometimes an outside voice helping to push for change, it's not going to happen, right? And you have to do it in a culturally sensitive way. So a story in Malaysia a couple of years ago when I went right as COVID hit, um, I went with a student who was trying to convert sort of more of a wildlife monitoring camera trapping project into a community project. And she really wanted to try and involve the women too. And so this is the longhouse I mentioned earlier. Uh -huh. And I said, well, did you just, I mean, have you asked the women? And she's like, no, because I feel bad like giving them one more <laughs> thing to do because I see them working 24 seven, you know? 
And I said, well, let's just ask them. And so we said to the women when I got there, we're like, are you interested in learning how to camera trap like the men have learned? And they're like, yeah, why didn't you ask us two years ago when you started the project? Of course we want to learn. And so we did an impromptu two-day training and it was wonderful and they loved it. Uh, and it sort of got into issues, too, of women not having access to the positions that this research project was paying for, right? I was so, about to ask, does this right. open up job po- job it possibilities does. in econ? Yeah. 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 And this, I mean, this particular case, it, it meant that this, you know, the project was hiring the men to help with the camera trapping and the women couldn't get hired. Or if the men were out of the longhouse in the city and they couldn't take their turn at the camera trapping because they took turns, the women couldn't do it. But they said, if we were trained, we could just step into our husband's place and we could do mm-hmm. it and get the income. Uh, you know, so that's, that's one side of it is just learning the skills and maybe having opportunities for jobs. But it's also in their own community conservation projects, right? Who has the capacity to actually carry things out and understand? Understand why are we camera trapping? You know, or how do we do this? Or what do the results mean? Um, so trying to include everyone is so important. No, it's totally important. I mean, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of some of the challenges of of even ethnobotanical field work, where you're you're doing some similar things in, in the onset of trying to gather information from different different representatives of in parts of the community, and um, your research can be really biased depending on who you speak with, because for example, children have a different knowledge set around wild edible plants while they're off collecting, you know, um, watching the sheep, collecting plants while they're out that, that does go into the income of the family. The men have different knowledge from when they're hunting and they're in deeper parts of the forest. The women in some cases, like I'm thinking in particular of some of our work in the Balkans have more knowledge about, you know, cultivated local plants and things that are found in hedgerows and closer to the village. And so, you know, if you only speak to one of those groups, you're going to get a very different, you know, picture of, of what their interactions with nature is like. Um, and I'm hearing exactly that from, from your um, description as well. They have these different perspectives and, and access to opportunities is huge. That's huge. So how does funding work in this kind of enterprise um, within um, community conservation? Like how does, how does one get a project going? Is this funded through grant mechanisms or philanthropy? How does all of that work? So as an organization, we're really trying to build up our donor base so that we have sustainable funding that we can rely on to keep working with communities because grants and donor money tends to be limited, right? It's usually, mm-hmm. especially for community conservation type projects at the scale that we're talking, it's you know very small amounts of money that can support a project for a year or two, which kind of gets back to, you wanna be able to support people a little bit more long-term, right? Like maybe you will have to leave in a year, but it's nice to be able to stay longer and work with the community. Uh, and so community conservation funding is pretty small scale when you're talking about the process that we're trying to do. And one of our our goals and our hopes is we have a partner network. So all these projects I mentioned, there's local NGOs and country that are helping facilitate those. And we're trying to build up a partner network that just sort of highlights um, community conservation in all these countries and across the world and tries to get groups to think more about, like everyone says they do community conservation, right? There isn't an NGO out there between WWF or Conservation International or any of the the big ones, you know, and even the small ones that say they do community conservation. But often, as I mentioned, it is like substitution activities or livelihood activities or awareness, right? They're trying to convince people to conserve biodiversity. And we really want there to be more focus on people um, really building, as I said, the capacity of the communities. And so it would be awesome to have every NGO laying out exactly what are you doing to actually support the community 
capacity? Who's learning how to do camera trapping or who's learning how to do management or how are you supporting the community directly? Rather than saying this many people benefited from, you know, education campaign or from participating in a livelihood activity, which when it comes to conservation, livelihood activities have not been very successful. So mm -hmm. to start with those is often not a good idea if you're trying to conserve biodiversity. That was my original PhD research was looking at that link. And people, you know, back in the 90s in Nepal were like, yeah, I mean, this is great that this project is here trying to help us with our livelihoods, but we know they want to conserve the park. And we don't understand how it's helping to conserve the park, right? <laughs> but from yeah. the NGO perspective, they're like, oh, we have to gain the trust of the communities and show that we care about them. And we recognize, you know, their, their poverty, basically. And the community is like, if you want to conserve the park, let's, you know, talk to us about it. And yeah. Give us substitution. <laughs> that's it seems so obvious but yeah it's I know. um <laughs> you think it would not be going on today but it still is because i think again yeah. the assumptions we bring from the outside right about mm -hmm. whether that we have to convince people to oh they're too poor to want to conserve biodiversity um you know which is just not true right <laughs> and actually all development indicators are generally going up around the world right so it's less true now yeah. than 30 years ago people want to conserve biodiversity because their livelihoods do depend on it and it's all integrated. Exactly. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we need to set aside some of these assumptions about people's socioeconomic status and what their interests are and motivations and just work as partners with them. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see how, especially when you're, when you're offering opportunities to build skills that could then translate to other opportunities, even after your project wraps up. Um, so you're really feeding into the overall community support of like kind of the, the micro economy of what's happening um, locally. And building the next generation of conservationists. Mm -hmm. So actually one of my mentors from Smithsonian Institute, we were working, started to work in Myanmar in 1999. And one of his, as a, as a conservationist, not a community person at all, but he was completely devoted to training all the local staff who in that case were all local people, which is pretty mm -hmm. unusual in a country, right? To have the local, the protected area staff be from the local communities. And he's like, we're just gonna do trainings on ornithology, entomology. We're gonna show people how to make specimens. And it's the number of people that he trained and then became like national leaders in those areas in Myanmar is really amazing. So again, not the, you wow. know, getting away from the parachute conservation, but actually building that ground level. Like anyone in a community could be the next you know, great superstar in conservation, right? From any village. We like to say there's a conservationist in every village, right? That can yeah. accomplish so many things. And so, yeah, that's another reason why it's so important to build that skill base. Now it's huge. Well, I mean, I'm curious about your training because the way that you speak about this work is more along the lines of what I would expect from like someone that has some anthropology and biology experience. And this is very standard in ethnobiology, but I would say in my experience, not necessarily very standard and typical conservation biology, even still today. It's I've seen many failed attempts at conservation. Again, going back to example, you know, looking at songbirds in Albania, they have a national ban on hunting certain animals that of course fails. You know, people are still doing this. There's no communication with communities around these, you know, around the the rationale behind needing to have bans on on hunting of certain animals. So how how did you how did you come to this in your PhD work? Because that would have been really against the norm, I think, of that of that period when you were being trained. 
yeah. unless you're being trained across disciplines. Well, I don't want to get too wonky, but um, <laughs> in terms of academia, but in the 90s, when I got my conservation biology degree, the programs were new, right? And I went to the University mm -hmm. of Minnesota. And I think the trend I saw in the 90s was conservation biology programs really were trying to train individuals to be interdisciplinary. Oh, right? that's great. And yeah. they really were committed to an individual learning across disciplines, learning the language to bring all the different disciplines who are involved in conservation together, right? Whether, you know, anthropologists, ecologists, botanists, right? Like mm -hmm. we thought of the, uh, like a keystone or like a, the Rosetta Stone or something, right? Like you could learn yeah. enough about things to really be a catalyst for conservation. And I think that's more the way we were trained. And then I began to see in the 2000s, I feel like the programs really switched because it's sort of hard to figure out where do all these interdisciplinary people end up, right? What's the mm -hmm. career track from A to B to C to tenure or, <laughs> and I think yeah. people say, oh, they're not getting the jobs. They need to focus on a, a particular discipline again. And then you bring people together. And so interdisciplinary then becomes individuals talking to each other from their own disciplines. So it's interdisciplinary, yeah. many disciplines represented, <laughs> but no one who can talk across them. No one that can interpret the Rosetta Stone, of course. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we're kind of back where we were, you know, in the 70s and 80s that we were trying to help with in the 90s with conservation biology. But yeah. Well, what would your advice be for students? I mean, I know that among our audience, among our listeners, we have a lot of um, graduate students, undergrads, postdocs, people that are training and or perhaps looking for their next steps in their career development. Like, what would you tell them today if they're interested in conservation or just in general studies around biodiversity? Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of different roles, right? So it's sort of that typical advice to figure out what really drives you and what gets you excited. So for whatever reason, and I can't explain it, I just love people's perceptions of nature and protected areas in places like Nepal and Cameroon, right? I mm -hmm. never get tired of going to a village and just hearing people's excitement about biodiversity or concerns about biodiversity you know, being threatened or different things happening. To me, that is just like, for some reason, that's just what really gets me excited. Um, and so I think figuring out what really keeps you passionate about, you know, but then also having skills, right? Building in skills. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people go into a master's or a PhD and they don't really know what they want to do. Um, and that can be hard because if you don't really know what you want to do, academia or NGOs, then what skills do you need, right? Because you kind of need to figure out what can you offer for mm -hmm. conservation or for the position that you want. And I think that's a hard thing to know until you've done it a little bit, but it is really important. Like, do you love to sit in front of a computer and do GIS? GIS and remote sensing stuff is so critical and there's so many good positions, but that's not going to work for some people, right? Everyone everyone wants to be in the field. So there, there's also a reality of you can only be in the field so long in most yeah, positions, right? So you've got to figure that out. Like, can you find something that where you can be happy without going to the field? I hear that more than anything from people like, oh, I wish I could be in the field. I just want to manage projects in the field. And it's like, well, you can only do that for so long. Yeah. Right. Before you, you take your wisdom and your lessons learned back to the office. <laughs> right. right, yeah. right. Yeah. So a little bit more desk oriented usually. And often because you have family and kids, mm -hmm. you just don't, you can't be in the field so much. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great perspective. I mean, I'm wondering when you, when you think about these different places where you've worked and you've worked across different parts of the world with very different climates, different cultures, different languages. Um, have there been any kind of universal truths that you've seen in these communities when it comes to, to their relationship with nature? Is there something that just kind of sticks as part of the human experience that you've noted across these very different areas? People like biodiversity. <laughs> 
okay. So <laughs> that's, that's one reason I like walking into a village because there's going to be, I mean, there's always going to be interesting stories about their experiences mm-hmm. with projects or with conservation. But in the end, there's that shared value of biophilia. Right. This yeah. biophilia, it is important. And, and maybe we don't agree on exactly how to conserve it or where to put the resources or how much time or effort, but you can always have good conversations with people, right? They do, they care about their environment and they care about their community. And this is another sort of thread that I see is that most of the people who are, I mean, not everyone, but many people who are concerned about biodiversity around their communities are also really concerned with the health of their communities, Mm -hmm. the health writ large, right? Like in terms of just helping their communities do better. Um, And I think that to me is really amazing to see too, how active so many people are in their own communities, just helping with all different things, you know, just volunteering. And even at the, you know, the smallest villages somewhere, you've got people volunteering and just doing things because it's the right thing to do, which is also, yeah, also very motivating for me. Yeah. I wish we did that more in urban environments. (laughs) It's like, yeah. (laughs) And I was having a conversation. Someone the other day was saying they think volunteering has been going down. I thought, I thought that wasn't true, but yeah. How much time people spend doing things voluntarily. Yeah. Well, I know what, I mean, on this topic of biophilia, it's, it's hard to kind of explain it. I don't, I don't know for the listeners out there, how do you explain biophilia? I mean, I think for me, I've probably experienced it in its greatest form when I've been in areas that are absent of any diversity. Like I remember, you know, a few months ago, just driving into the, into the desert in Egypt where there's nothing like no, you know, for five hours, just driving, it's nothing but sand and it's beautiful, but it's also haunting and very strange to be in an area where there's so little life. And then when you come across the oasis where all of a sudden you start to see trees and animals and birds, it's just like, Oh, there's life again. (laughs) You know, it's like this, this relief. I don't know how to explain it. So I think that, you know, maybe we see that, in urban settings where you're kind of in these concrete jungles, when you're walking amidst concrete and buildings and kind of unnatural man-made engineered systems, and then you stop and rest in a park. I mean, that also is an engineered system. Um, but maybe that's just a way to think about it. How, how much peace you get from being around um, different creatures. I mean, how would you characterize it? Do you think? Yeah, so using maybe an opposite example of like a desert is, you know, most of a lot of my own research has been around communities and protected areas. And we think Mm -hmm. of protected areas as like the most conflict ridden sort of conservation intervention, right? Because people are denied access. There's a hard border usually. They don't participate in management when it comes to a national park or wildlife reserve usually. And that's that's the main area where I've gone to people and said, what do you like or dislike about a protected area? And across the board, people like them and they like them because they're, you know, you'll hear some countries, I hear this more than others. Nepal, people are, oh, the forest is healthy. We get fresh air. It's green. It's beautiful. I mean, they get all the livelihood mm-hmm. benefits and, you know, they can illegally extract fuel wood in many cases. They're using the, you know, re- illegally for resources, but they also just really appreciate having it there because they look at other villages and other areas where they're is no protection of the forest, right? Especially before there was community forestry in Nepal, when people felt like they couldn't control what was happening to the forests that weren't managed as, you know, a national mm-hmm. park or a protected area. And so even in cases where we think there should be the most conflict, I mean, 
one of my papers reviewed attitude studies all across the world, looking at what people said about why the local communities about protected areas. And the majority opinion was that they liked them. There's a, there is conflict. There's a lot of conflict to mitigate. There's human wildlife issues that people are suffering from. But those global benefits that we talk about from biodiversity and um, you know protected areas, they feel those too at a local level. You know, global doesn't mean only like only elites like yes. us are appreciating you know a park in Kenya. Those local people are appreciating it for all the same reasons more locally. They're also suffering the costs. Um, mm. But I think also for me that that's also you know that's part of the biophilia too, is that people look and they say, well, of course, this more natural environment that's protected is better than one, you know, there's no forest or it's being degraded or we can't manage it, right? And we're just seeing it slowly fritter away. Um, we had in my local village, you know, I live in Wisconsin in a very small village and we had a prairie bluff that the village wanted to develop. And I saw the same process unfold here where oh. it's this, this remnant prairie that people were sort of wasn't aware was up there. It wasn't, there were no signs for it or anything, but community volunteers have been taking care of it for decades. And then the board, the village board wanted to develop it. Um, and then all of a sudden the whole community was learning about it and talking about it and having to go through a process of making decisions and they stopped the development. Um, partly because there is an endangered species up there. So just legally, wow. you can't do anything. So, um, but you know, it's interesting to see the same process happen here where you got to raise people's awareness. They don't even always know what they have in their own backyard. And once they know, they usually appreciate it for yeah. many reasons, but yeah. Now that's a great example of, of, of this process happening closer to home. Well, and this, this ties into my next question around collective governance. What is collective governance and how do, how do NGOs and larger, you know, federal or state governments interact with local governments? Like, how does all this piece together to come up with these policies? Yeah, it's very complicated, isn't it? And, and so different in every country, in every context. Nepal has just gone through a federalization process. And so everything we sort of knew about what governance looked like there in terms of communities working with different departments is sort of being reworked. Um, but I think the important thing in any context is, is with community conservation, it doesn't mean communities doing it alone, right? It does mean mm -hmm. there need to be supportive, po supportive policies. And most countries have some policies that allow community tenure. Um, so there's usually something that will formally allow communities to get some form of tenure. I mean, that's can vary. Even in Cameroon, they think of community forestry happening in sort of the south in the, in the you know, tropical forest and the area with the chimps is a savanna forest and the government's not used to making community forests up there. So they just don't think of it as a place where you would register a forest. Mm -hmm. And so that's gonna be one of the obstacles that you know, we're gonna have to work through at that site is figuring out, is the local government gonna accept the paperwork? How are they gonna help support it or not? Or stand in the way, right? Uh, so that's, so we have another, a good story that kind of explains this whole idea of the governance and all the different actors is in Myanmar, Again, one of the guys we worked with in that original site was Smithsonian, you know, 20, 25 years ago. He he always, in all the projects that we've worked with him on, he likes to bring every department, every government agency, every NGO in an area into like a steering committee. So he sort oh. of took, you know, we, we call it polycenter governance where like all these different people have a role in the governance and are, you know, understanding what's happening. And he just on the ground from a very grounded perspective said, we can't work with the community and not have governmental departments or other projects and NGOs not knowing what we're doing. 
right? They'll start mm -hmm. to work at odds with each other and they just won't know, they just won't have awareness, right? So he would always put together a steering committee everywhere he worked, trying to bring together all the different agencies that might have a say in what was happening and try and get them on board and get their support for the community and get everybody working together. So that's sort of a grounded way to think about it. We can get a lot more, you know, wonky or complicated, but I think that's <laughs> one just a really grounded way to think about, yeah, when you're working somewhere, you know, make sure you're talking to everybody, right? Even as a scientist, you're going to do research. You need to think about who who should be involved or who should be aware or who should I talk my, about my research with, right? Like hopefully, the yeah. community, even if you're not working directly, they still want to know what you're doing. But, you know, then you've got to talk to all the different agencies that might you might need permissions from or, or whatever, right? So. Yeah, so important to build consensus and to have, you know, real buy-in to, to these projects, like you said, to make them sustainable and long-lasting and to have the information disseminated of whatever the outcomes turn mm -hmm. out to be. Mm -hmm. Well, Right now, where where is conservation or community conservation working? Where are your main projects that are happening right now? Yeah, so the countries you listed are the ones where we're active right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Peru and, and our partner there is also working in uh, Colombia and Argentina, and they primarily mm -hmm. are working on, on primates. Uh, we have Cameroon, uh, which is also primarily primate focused, mm -hmm. um, and then we we work in Myanmar, where I've worked for much longer than CC has worked, and Nepal, where also I've worked for a long time, and Malaysia. So we have the project in Malaysia. Nice. Yeah, and they all, it's all, it's interesting because they all contrast, and it's also interesting to think about community conservation across continents, because often in conservation, I guess continent is such a large scale that we think somehow we can't make comparisons, but I think there's a lot of really fruitful comparisons we could make looking at, like when you say indigenous peoples, in a way that only makes total sense in Latin America or the most sense in Latin America. Mm -hmm. As you move to like Africa and Asia, that's a much more difficult concept to figure out um, for various reasons, right? So it's a very slippery yeah. thing to talk about. Or population densities. I was just talking to someone who visited Thailand for the first time and she's like, it's just like the whole country's like a garden. And I think what she meant was she hadn't worked too much in Asia. So just the density of people like, of course, people are impacting every part of the landscape in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Densities that are huge in, in Asia. Um, and I think she just hadn't really thought about what that means, right? So what it means for way, land management. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes the denser, you know, the more people, the easier it is to do community conservation in a way. Because there's some community interested in every patch of land and they will work hard to help protect it because it's usually not <laughs> that big a patch, right? And so they have the capacity to just manage you know, fairly small community forest. But Africa, we're talking huge expanses and community conservation is just not going to work wow. in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Huge expanses of areas with no people or like the deserts you're talking about, right? You don't have a community invested in every patch of land there. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think too that community conservation might work better in places with higher densities of people. Fascinating. Right. And so <laughs> if you, if we had a philanthropist on the line listening to us today and you were going to make a pitch, like what, what would your pitch be? Like, are there new areas you'd like to expand to with, with, with um, your conservation efforts or would you perhaps enhance or elongate your projects in, in the existing areas? Like what would you, what would you shoot for if budget wasn't an issue? Well, I would say there's always more communities to support, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, there's a lot of capacity needed to manage biodiversity, right? They don't need to become PhDs, right? But every community needs help in figuring out some tools and monitoring. So there's no end to like the case by case um, 
project. But I think what I would make the pitch for is to just try and get all of us who are working on any scale in conservation to be more serious about communities and have more understanding of what it really means and and trust in the process with communities. Our, our founder, Rob Horwich, liked to say he never met a community that said no to wanting to work on this issue, right? And so yeah. to get every sort of NGO thinking, like especially the big ones who really are working across large landscapes, get them really thinking about how are we integrating communities, not in terms of what benefits are they getting from conservation, but how are they doing the conservation? How are they, how are they the active agents? And how are we really helping like the marginalized people in a country or a community at any scale, how are we really helping them also because they're often the most dependent on natural resources. But when it comes to projects have the least access to getting the skills, but like, you, you know, you said they're probably a really good model of, you know, the most marginalized in many countries are the ones who are the fishers. Right. Yeah. Right. And so if they had the skills, then they could be the respect. I mean, they have knowledge, but they don't necessarily have the, you know, the capacity to, to be hired to do monitoring or something. Yeah. Um, so I would make a pitch just for all of us to think more seriously about what community conservation is. And, and I've sort of done a, um, what do I call, a model, a model of trying to think about what would a conservation, a community conservation audit look like? So I don't know if, you know, people have heard of gender audits, right? And mm -hmm. how you look at, well, how much of a country's budget goes to women and really helps women. And I would love to see more projects sort of do a community conservation audit. And it's not that all the money in a project should go to communities, right? Because there's basic research that needs to be done. Things have to happen in a large yeah. landscape. But within whatever you're trying to do, how much, how much, what percentage is actually going to community like skills and capacity and governance processes and management, right? Amazing. Yeah, no, that's, it just, it makes so much sense. <laughs> this is the way to make things, you know, the best projects are those that have long lasting sustainable impact. And I think, I think you've really nailed down what it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we all, everyone who said they were in community conservation was doing that, I think we'd really make a lot of, you know, a lot of yeah. progress. For sure. All right. Well, where can we send folks to learn more about your work? Is there um, a website we can send them to? Yep. Communityconservation.org communityconservation.org. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Terry, for coming on the show. I learned a lot about conservation. Um, and I really appreciate the focus on community and, and people because big changes start with individuals. They start with communities, um, and oh. then can spread, you know, so <laughs> I can make one last pitch. Yeah. You made me. So that is one of the questions about community conservation is how does it scale up? And we have both, uh, we, you know, we have, research that shows one especially from our partner in peru we have something called community you know conservation community conservation contagion where if you get one community you know you're working at a very small scale with one community but then they share what they're doing with the communities around them right so probably mm -hmm. nepal with its community forestry the same thing happened as one community got tenure in peru they see that with the community conservation areas you can map where one community often you know with near an NGO who was supporting them started a community, you know, CCA, community conservation area. And it just sort of spread out as other communities nice. said, oh, that's cool. And we saw that in Assam with one of our projects also that other communities come and they're like, oh, this is interesting. What are you doing? So it really is also something that scales up. I mean, that's often a question, right? Like, oh, it has to be so context specific and how do you scale it up? But they they will scale it up, right? If you build it's a part of the natural process. Right, that's exactly. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So thanks. Just wanted to add that in. <laughs> Absolutely super important. Well, thanks so much for coming to the show, Terry. It was great speaking with yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, Cassie. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. Um, if you enjoy the show, let me ask a favor of you. Head over to Apple Podcast and hit those five stars and maybe write a little blurb about why you like the show. That really helps us in getting the word out um, about the program. Also, if you would enjoy getting some fun foodie merch, we have that for you as well. If you go over to mysterycontrol.com and uh, check out the science tab, we've got lots of fun t-shirts and hats and totes and mugs and all kinds of cool stuff. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.